Good morning, ladies. It's wonderful to see such a full room. It is truly such a joy and a privilege to be here with you this morning. We are so excited to be kicking off the start of a brand new Titus 2 Bible study year. I don't know about for you, but for me, it's a little hard to believe that it's time for back to school and all of the fall ministries to be starting up. I looked at the weather app this morning, and I think it's going to be 110 tomorrow or the day after. It doesn't feel like fall, (laughs) Um, but it is indeed time. Well, this year we're going to be studying the book of Philippians together, and we are going to be working our way through the book In All Things by Melissa Kruger to help us do that. And so our goal this year, both in our big group lesson time and in our small group times, is that we would all grow in our knowledge of God, grow in our relationship with God, grow in our knowledge of the book of Philippians, and grow in our relationships with one another. As followers of Christ, we want to grow in our ability to study his word, right? The more we know him, the more we will love him. And the more we love him, the more we will obey him. And the more we obey him, the better we can glorify him which is ultimately what all of us have as our goal each day, right? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, the book In All Things is laid out just a little bit differently than books we've used in the past. And so for that reason, I've been asked to take just a minute to explain how this is going to work before we dig right into our lesson this morning. This book is designed to be completed in nine lessons. And we've modified that to fit with our eight-month Titus II year. And so our schedule is detailed for you in this booklet we've made that goes along with the book. This year, we'll be learning, we'll be studying a half a chapter of Philippians at a time. And so in our big group lesson time, the text we go over will be that half a chapter. And then in our small groups, we'll discuss the text and the questions from the chapter together. And in the booklet, you'll see that we've let you know which questions will be used for discussion time, in case that's helpful for you. But please do try your best to answer and complete all of the questions in the chapter. One of the biggest reasons we chose this book is because the author does such a great job of modeling how to approach any text in Scripture. In each of the chapters, you will see the pattern of observation, interpretation and application repeated for each new text that we get to. And that's important for us to know. When we read the Bible, we first want to observe and ask, what does it say? And then we want to interpret. What did the author mean when he wrote it? Now, notice I did not say, what does it mean to me? (laughs) Who cares what it means to me? (laughs) What matters is, what did Paul mean when he wrote it? And finally, we want to apply it. And what that means is how do I take what I've just learned and impact my life with it? How do I live in obedience to it? Well, in the back of the book, you might notice there is a study guide, and it has additional questions listed. But those are not assigned, and they're not additional homework. Your small group leaders might pull a couple of questions from there to discuss in group, but you don't need to go through them ahead of time. You don't need to write answers for those. Um, Just focus on the questions in the chapter. Now, you might have noticed um, already that the first chapter 
and our first lesson time are a little bit different. Before we jump right into the book of Philippians, we're going to take a look first at the life of the Apostle Paul, the author of the book of Philippians. In order to fill out our understanding and really appreciate all he says in his letter to the church at Philippi, we need to have at least a basic understanding of who Paul is. And so whether you're very familiar with Paul and you are encouraged again by the story of his life or you're brand new to Paul, um, this is going to be an exciting morning. I love getting to talk about him and his story. All right, well, with that said, let's get started. The title of our lesson this morning is The Joy-Filled Life of Paul. The Joy-Filled Life of Paul. We're going to see together that as a new creation in Christ, Paul experienced true joy in all of his circumstances because the source of his joy was Christ alone. Before we dig in, let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We are so thankful for the start of a new year of this ministry. We are so thankful for the opportunity to study your word together. Lord, I pray that you would grow each of us in our knowledge of you, in our love for you, in our desire to obey you, and our ability to bring you glory. Lord, I pray that you would grow each of us in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that our lives would be impacted by the truths we learn today and this year in your word. And Lord, we would um, complete the study at the end of the year as followers of you who know you more and love you more and obey you better and bring glory to your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to consider the life of the Apostle Paul, and we're going to stay in the book of Acts. We're actually going to look at several different texts together, um, but you can turn to chapter 7 for now because we're going to begin there. And we're going to consider three realities of Paul's life this morning. And so in order to do that properly, we're going to begin at the beginning with the conversion of Paul. The conversion of Paul. If you're not already there, turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 54 through 60. And so to give you a little bit of context, we're about to step into the scene of the stoning of Stephen. Verse 54 begins. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Okay, so here in Acts chapter 7, we have recorded for us the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen has just finished preaching a sermon to these men, and they are fuming with anger at him. And so they chase him out of the city, and they stone him. They murder him. 
and standing right there in the midst of all of the action is a young man named Saul. Saul is the same man that we know and love as the Apostle Paul. This is the before Christ version of him. Saul's position up front in the action suggests that he was deeply involved in this whole wicked affair of murdering Stephen. He's not just an innocent bystander. Glance down just a couple verses on the page, and in chapter 8, verse 1, we see that Saul approved of the execution and that he was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off Christian men and women, and throwing them in prison. Well, we can fill in our understanding of what Saul was like even more by looking at chapter 9, verse 1, which says, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He even asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, which were essentially arrest warrants, so that if he found any Christians, he could bring them bound to Jerusalem for trial. All right, so let's pause here for a moment and consider what we know about Saul. He has a front row seat to the murder of Stephen. He's ravaging the church. He's dragging Christians out of their houses. He's breathing threats and murder. He's actively hunting down believers. Does this sound like a joyful person to you? It doesn't, right? Because ravaging, dragging people out of their houses, threats, murders, those things and joy don't go together. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, and I don't want to steal any thunder from this chapter because we're actually going to get there later this year. But if we want to know about Saul, then we have to know about his resume. Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about who he was before Christ, and he says in verses 4 through 6, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the, righteous which is in the, the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So Saul had a resume as impressive as they come. He had everything you could hope to have in both pedigree and performance. He's of the nation of Israel, circumcised of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. And not only that, but he was zealous and righteous according to the Jews. And so if there's anyone who could put stock in where they come from, in their family name, their legacy, or count on what they've accomplished, what they're passionate about, their list of accomplishments, it's Saul. He has every earthly reason to be happy and content. But is he? Does he seem joyful? We don't see any sign of that. He's breathing threats. He spends his days hunting down people to persecute. None of the things that pad his resume are of any worth eternally. And they are the same ways that people today are desperately searching for joy apart from Christ. But your family name, the size of your bank account, the title on your business card, the accomplishments of your children, your good health, the leadership role you've been given in an organization, none of those things will ever bring real joy. They will, ever, they will never be enough. 
They will never bring the true steadfast joy that we're going to see throughout the book of Philippians. So if nothing on Saul's resume adds up to equal joyful, then how is this the same man that authored Philippians, the most joyful letter in the Bible? Well, let's look at it together. Go back to Acts. We're going to go to Acts chapter 9. We're going to read verses 3 through 9. All right, now remember, the last time we saw Saul, he was gathering letters to take to Damascus so that he could persecute the Christians there. And then verse 3 begins. As he's traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you, told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. All right, so Saul is going to Damascus, and he has a plan. And our sovereign God is allowing Saul to go to Damascus, and he has a very different plan. Saul is literally marching down the road to persecute Christians when he is stopped dead in his tracks. Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? All right, we got we to pause and just for a moment consider everything that must be flooding Saul's mind right now. He knows the gospel well enough to hate and persecute Christians. He knew the claims of Jesus and the history of God's redemption as Stephen had just preached it. And all that knowledge has been in Saul's mind. And up till now, he has hated it enough to actively persecute the church. And then Jesus Christ appeared to him. And when Saul sees the risen Lord and the realization sets in of what is true and what he's been doing, the conviction must have been totally overwhelming. He was crushed then and there, and his eyes opened to the truth of Christ. The Savior responds to him by saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. MacArthur explains in his commentary that this is when the conversion of Saul takes place. He's crying out, who are you, Lord? And when Jesus, who he knows was crucified, answers him, the truth of the gospel becomes crystal clear to him. He knew the Christian message well, having debated it with Stephen. He knew Christ was crucified and is obviously now alive and who he claimed to be. And Saul's resistance was crushed in that moment and his heart, broken in repentance, was healed by faith. Well, there are a few important implications that I want to make sure we don't miss here. First, it was God alone that acted in saving Paul. This wasn't Paul seeking out Christ, right? In fact, it's, it's very clear that it wasn't even a mutual decision. It's, it's not even like Jesus was throwing Paul a life raft and Paul said, okay, I'll be saved. No, Saul was on a mission. He had a plan that he thought was a good plan. Maybe he even thought it was the best plan for his life. He was marching down the road to Damascus to fulfill his plan. But thanks be to God. 
that he had a very different plan for Paul. And he appears to him, he opens his eyes to the truth, Paul sees his sin, his need for a Savior, and falls at the feet of our Savior in humble submission to the Lord. And so because of the incredible grace of God, Paul is completely forgiven. And immediately, he has a new heart, a new perspective, and a new mission to accomplish. The second implication we need to take notice of do you remember one of the ways that Paul was described, that Saul was described, uh, was that he was zealous, right? He was zealous and doing all that he was doing, and he thought he was doing it for God. He was zealous in pursuing righteousness. Ladies, it's so important for us to understand that sincerity alone will not get you into heaven. You can be very sincere and very wrong at the same time. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life, singular. There are no other options. There are many, many people sincerely following the broad path, doing what they believe to be right in their own minds down a road that is leading straight to hell. To be a genuine believer, to be a genuine follower of Christ, you must believe in the biblical gospel. You must repent of your sin, acknowledge your need for a savior, and submit your life to Christ. Ladies, this comes up a lot, but it's so important. This is why we must be regularly taking in the word of God. This is why we have got to learn how to study for ourselves God's word. We must know the God of the universe as he declares himself to be, not as you imagine him to be in your mind. If we don't know what the Bible says, then the version of God we have in our mind has been made up by us. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. We speak to God when we pray to him. He speaks to us through his word. If we want to know God, if we want to know God's will for us, we have to be in his word. The third implication from the marvelous salvation of Saul is that it brings so much hope to all of us. If there was ever a person (laughs) that you could look at and think, surely you're too far gone. Surely you have done too many things wrong. You have got to be beyond hope, right? It would be Saul. In 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 17, Paul says of himself, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, 
immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and he says that the grace of our Lord was even more abundant. There is no limit to the grace of Christ. If you are a believer, then you know this is true. You know the miracle that God performed when he breathed new life into you, made you a new creation, gave you a new heart, full of new desires and a new will to serve and glorify him, right? I know who I was apart from Christ. I know the things I used to love and the desires that I used to think were important, things that used to motivate me, and by the grace of God, that is not who I am since I've come to know the Lord all those years ago. That is miraculous. Every salvation is miraculous that anyone would ever turn from their love of self and their love of sin to love the Lord and a love of others is a work that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. And whenever I think about this incredible reality, my mind often goes back to the hymn, Amazing Grace. And I know you know these words, but I would challenge you to listen to them anew. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It is all by his amazing grace to God be the glory. Well, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, you have never repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ and been saved, do not believe the lie that you are too far gone. Do not believe the lie that there is no way God could save you. There is no way he could forgive you. There's no way God could love you. It's just not true. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer. But you are tempted to feel hopeless for a family member. Maybe it's a child that is in active rebellion. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your parents that you've spent decades preaching the gospel to. Maybe it's an adult child that professed faith but now is not living like he's living for Jesus. Sometimes we can be tempted to think, but I've prayed for so long. We have a God who delights to save. Remember the example of Paul, the man literally marching down the road to persecute Christ and his church when God stopped him dead in his tracks and made him a new creation. Keep praying for the ones you love. Pray hard. Pray without ceasing for their salvation. Our God is an amazing Savior. All right, well, now let's look together at what a new life in Christ looks like. What did Paul's life look like once he was redeemed? The next reality we're going to consider together is the commitment of Paul. We just looked looked together at this conversion of Paul, and so now we're going to look together at the commitment of Paul. We're going to keep reading in Acts to see what the life of this new creature looked like. We're still in chapter 9. Glance down to verses 20 to 25 with me. 
And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept insisting in strength and confounding the Jews, increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by providing that by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. All right, so if you look at the beginning of verse 20 one more time, and immediately. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Well, those are the very same synagogues that he was just marching towards so that he could arrest the Christians and bring them to trial in Jerusalem. And then he met Christ and was saved on the way. And now he's in the synagogues, not to persecute Christians, but to preach Christ. And I bet, I bet all the people in there were totally confused. Can't you just picture it? They had to have been like, wait, what? I thought this was the Saul that everyone was afraid of. I thought this was the one that we've all been talking about, and the one that's been searching for Christians, and now he's one of them? You know, sometimes I think we can get Paul and the other heroes in the faith built up in our minds, almost like they're superheroes or something, right? Like characters that can do amazing, unattainable things. And it's possible that we forget these are also real people with real friends and real family, real strengths and real weaknesses, and real temptations. And I think it's noteworthy to notice the immediate commitment of Paul. When Paul came to know the Lord and he was given a new heart and a new will and a new purpose, his old will and purpose were completely gone. I can only speak of my own experience, but when I became a believer and my desires changed and all the things I wanted to spend my time and money and affections on all changed, there was a period of time where I struggled with trying to figure out what that was going to look like. I lost a lot of friends that I no longer had anything in common with, and I, and I wrestled a little bit with how to handle that. Am I being rude if I don't go to the things they invite me to go to anymore? Are they going to get mad at me because I got religious? Will I make new friends? Will I figure out what this new life is going to look like? And I imagine to some degree anyway that it might be like that for a lot of us who came to know Christ as adults. But we don't see even a hint of that here with Paul. The text says he immediately started preaching the gospel. It does not say that he went back home to give his old friends a heads up. <laughs> Or, or that he considered still hanging out with them if, if they weren't like actively persecuting Christians, right? Or that he worried what the people in Damascus were going to think about him, or if the new Christians were going to accept him. Nope. We don't see any of that anywhere. We see a man that has gone from dead to alive, and he is now on a mission with no distractions and no excuses. Well, speaking of no excuses... <laughs> Right away, we're going to see that this new mission of Paul's isn't going to be effortless or trial-free. Verses 23 to 25 say, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. 
And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. He has just started this new life with his new mission to preach Christ, and they're already trying to kill him. (laughs) Paul's commitment to Christ and the gospel are going to endure through many, many difficulties. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul shares a brief recap of all that he has suffered for the sake of the gospel. Chapter 11, verses 23 to 28, he says there has been, that he has been beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And through all of it, he never quits. He never wavers. We never see him question, is this worth it? No. Paul's commitment to Christ and his gospel are steadfast. And not only is he steadfast, but he's bold. The next two verses, 27 and 28 of chapter 9. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he talked to them and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul is sold out for Christ. He is unashamed of the gospel. Everything he was is gone. And everything he now is, is all-consuming, come what may. And Paul explains to the Corinthians in his second letter to them in chapter 5 that his motivation to do all of this, his motivation to consider it all loss for the sake of Christ and his gospel is the love of Christ. The personal Perfect, infinite love of the Savior is the fuel that spurs the Apostle Paul on to do all that he does to build Christ's church here on earth. And it's more than enough motivation for Paul, and it should be more than enough motivation for all believers. As we look at the completely changed life and, com- and commitment of Paul, we should stop and ask ourselves, is this what my life looks like? Am I so motivated by what the Lord has done for me and his steadfast love for me that I'm willing to suffer? I'm willing to be inconvenienced. I am willing to even have an uncomfortable conversation for the sake of sharing his truth. May we be as bold and unashamed as Paul was as we live out our days for the Lord. Well, the third reality of Paul's life that we're going to take a closer look at together is the contentment of Paul. We've seen his conversion. We've seen his commitment. 
Now let's look at his contentment. We're going to move forward several chapters in Acts now to chapter 16. And we know that Paul immediately started preaching the truth and that the persecution and the trials for Paul began almost, you know, just as immediately. And so let's check in on him now and see how he's doing. Chapter 16, verses 25 to 31 say, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were fast unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and all your household. All right, so we need some context again. Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and they have just encountered a slave girl that has a spirit of divination. And this demon-possessed girl is making her masters a lot of money by fortune-telling. And so this slave girl kept following them and crying out that these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Okay, it's not in my notes, but side note, isn't it fascinating that even the demon-possessed girl knows that these men are servants of the Most High God, right? Because, because demons know who God is. That's why mentally acknowledging that he exists is not the same thing as being a believer, right? Do you love him? Okay, back, back on the notes. I just think it's like so interesting. Okay. After several days of this, being followed around by this demon-possessed girl, Paul gets greatly annoyed by this demon and surely felt sorry for the wretched state of this girl. And so he commands the spirit in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And in response to Paul's authority as an apostle, he does. And so the masters of the slave girl are furious. Now they can't make any more money off her. And so they seize Paul and Cyrus and drag him to the marketplace before the authorities, declaring that they are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us, being Romans. And so even though the charges are false, the crowd gets worked up. And the mob mentality takes over. And the chief magistrates don't investigate the charges or hold a proper hearing. Instead, they tear the robes off Paul and Silas and order them beaten. And after they have received many blows from the rods, the magistrates order them to be thrown into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Well, the jailer isn't taking any chances, and so he puts them in the inner prison, and he fastens their feet in the stocks. This is going to be one of those times that everyone present that night as well as everyone else who has read that letter since, gets to see how God can turn awful circumstances into spiritual victory. Why does God allow this to happen? Did Paul and Silas deserve go to jail? No. Were they actually stirring up the Roman crowd to insurrection and guilty of the charges? No. So then why did sovereign God allow this to happen? Well, we don't always get to see 
why God or how God uses the circumstances that his people go through for good, but in this case, we have a front row seat. That whole scenario leads to our verse 25, where we find Paul and Silas in jail, and it's about midnight, and they're exhausted, and they've been beaten with rods, and their feet are in shackles, and what do we find them doing? They're praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners are listening to them. Okay, what? (laughs) They're doing what? But you heard that correctly. After being publicly beaten, thrown into the filthy dungeon that is the inner jail, locked up in stocks, they're awake in the middle of the night, and they're singing hymns of praise to God. How beautiful. Paul's joy is not tied to his circumstances. His joy is not tied to the resume, to the wealth or the health or the relationships or any other thing that people get caught up into. His joy is in the Lord. His joy is unshakable because it is the fruit of the Spirit. His joy is unquenchable because it's not dependent on anything that can change. His joy, the source of his joy, is Christ. Paul has been redeemed. He's been made new. He is on a mission from the Most High God to spread the truth of the gospel. And for tonight, that mission includes sitting in jail, being surrounded by these prisoners and this jailer. And so they're praying, and they're singing hymns of praise to the Lord God Almighty. Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And so we read that and we think, always? Rejoice always? How can I do that? This trial that I'm going through is too hard. There's so much on my plate. This person I have to work with is so difficult. How can I rejoice in this job? But notice that Paul's instruction isn't just rejoice always. It's rejoice in the Lord always. And he speaks from experience. Our lives have real trial. And we walk through real heartbreak, and Paul's not discounting that. But thankfully, as Christians, our joy isn't tied to any of that. Our joy is in the Lord, and it cannot be contained. Well, not only are Paul and Silas singing hymns of praise in the middle of this circumstance, but they're also loving others. There's an earthquake, All the doors are opened, everyone's chains become unfastened, and the jailer wakes up and sees that the doors are open, and assuming everyone has escaped, he's going to kill himself because he knows the penalty for letting the prisoners escape is death. And Paul yells out to stop him and assures him that they're all still there. Well, understandably, the guard is shook. (laughs) Like, no doubt he heard the message that the missionaries were preaching, and no doubt this earthquake was miraculous that opened all the doors and unfastened all the chains. And so he runs and he falls down at the feet of Paul and Silas, and he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And in verse 31, they answer him, believe in the Lord Jesus. You, and your, you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together, 
with all who were in his house, and he took him that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Well, the question the jailer asked Paul and Silas that night is the same question that we all must ask and respond to. It's the most important question we will ever ask. What must you do to be saved? Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what does that look like? To repent means to acknowledge that you have sinned before a holy God and you turn from that sin. To believe is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he is fully God and fully man, that he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay the sin, the, to pay the penalty for every sin of every person that would ever believe, rose from the dead, conquering death, and is now seated at the right hand of God. If you have never placed your faith in Christ, today is the day. Pray. Cry out to the God who loves you. Repent of your sin. Submit your life to Christ and be saved. Here in this scene in Acts, we get to see one of the reasons that the Lord allowed Paul and Silas to be thrown in jail that night. Now, surely only God knows all of the reasons why he does what he does, but we here have a glimpse into at least one reason why. God intended to bring the jailer to himself that night. And he was redeeming one of his own. And Paul and Silas were the men he used to facilitate the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul and Silas, being in jail that night, was exactly where God intended them to be for his purposes. Our God is amazing, isn't he? He's not only sovereign, but he's good. And he is at work in all circumstances for the good of those who love him. And he is the source of real joy that transcends our circumstances. Well, for our application this morning, ladies, there are a few things that we should take away from Paul's example. First, we must praise God for his work alone in salvation. He provides the way. He opens our eyes. He breathes new life into us and creates in us a new heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He enables us to be used for the good of his kingdom. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Pastor Tom has just done such an incredible job of breaking down the gospel for us each week as he's been taking us through the book of 1 John. He's explained um, that our hope cannot be in a prayer, our hope cannot be in a plan, but rather it must be in the person of Jesus Christ alone. All right, well, second, we must be committed, like Paul was, to our new mission as ambassadors for Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, ambassador, that word ambassador is also translated as messenger. We are messengers on behalf of Christ. The reason that we are not called home the moment we are saved is because we have a job to do. Let us be bold like Paul and share the gospel with whoever the Lord has crossed our paths. 
And I know that's one of those things that's a little bit easier, if we're honest. It's a little easier to say when we're in here than it is to do in real life, right? But I think it's easier if you already have a plan in place as to how you're going to get to the gospel. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, when I'm talking to people like my hairdresser or my trainer at the gym, the question, the way I most often get to the, to the gospel is um, I'm often asked things like, what do you do for a living? Right? That question comes up a lot when you're meeting new adults. What do you do for a living? It definitely comes up more often than tell me your thoughts about God. <laughs> right? That, that doesn't happen as often. Um, but what do you do for a living comes up pretty often. And so when people ask me, what do you do for a living, they get one of two answers. Just kind of based on, I don't know, my mood. All right. So I either tell them I teach at a small Christian school, which is awesome because I have the freedom to tell my students that God is their creator and man is sinful. And without Jesus, and, and, and off I go. And they didn't even want to know all that. They were just asking me what I do for a living. Or I tell them, my husband and I serve in middle school ministry at our church, and I just love it. It's my favorite thing. Because week after week, we get to explain to these kids that God is our creator, and he is perfectly holy. But sinful man, right, and here we go again. <laughs> And they didn't even know all that was coming. And sometimes, sometimes they're like, oh, yeah, okay. But sometimes it leads to a conversation. My, my trainer, for example, months I tried, month, months I tried to get there this way. He was not having it. Um, but then one time I had to reschedule a session because I was speaking. And that, he thought, was pretty cool. Oh, you're going to speak to people. What are you going to talk about? Let me tell you. <laughs> it was awesome. And I, I can't help but think of um, Charlie Gates. Man, he was bold. Um, I, I've heard it told anyway that when he would get on an elevator, he would say, how are you? And the unsuspecting stranger would say, I'm good. And Charlie would say, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> you are a wretched sinner. Like, I'm maybe not quoting that exactly right, but uh, the point is Charlie had a plan. And so I would encourage you just to think of a way to get there. It, that can be the biggest stumbling block because who's ever going to say, like who's ever going to walk up to you in Kroger or in your life and say, tell me your thoughts on God? Unlikely. Um, but you can get there if you can think of an avenue more often. It will help you be bold anyway. All right, the last way that we want to imitate Paul is to imitate Christ is that we are to be joyful in whatever season or circumstance or location that the Lord has us in. And so there are plenty of times that we don't feel happy, obviously, right? You don't get terrible news and be like, woohoo, right? <laughs> I mean, of course not. You don't find out that a loved one has cancer and feel happy. Of course you don't. But that's not Paul's instruction. In all things, in all circumstances, the good times and the hard times, we can, in fact, be joyful when we have our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, and we have an eternal perspective. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. This life is a vapor. Have you ever walked into a public restroom, uh, maybe at a restaurant or in the airport, and heard the automatic air freshener go off, right? 
in light of all of eternity with our Savior, this entire life, the moments that are so wonderful, we want to dance on the streets like David, and the moments that are so hard, you feel like you can't breathe, all of it, this whole life, when compared to eternity with Christ, is a vapor. Next time you're in the bathroom, <laughs> that's going to happen, right? You're going to hear that, and you'll be like, that was my whole life. <laughs> but, but when we have our perspective, right, when we have an eternal perspective, when we think, okay, God, tonight your plan for me includes sitting in jail, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to sing hymns of praise, right? If we get caught up in the details of this life and we let our joy be tied to completing our to-do list, that's first because it's a trap for me. <laughs> but if our joy is tied to completing a to-do list or getting the bigger house that we've wanted or our children being well-behaved, especially when other people are watching, or our adult children making the choices we would make for them, we're set up to fail. And our joy will escape our grasp every time because those, none of those things are enough. Those are all good gifts. They're not the giver. But when we keep an eternal perspective in our mind on our mission, we can be joyful in all circumstances because Christ is not only enough. He is abundantly more than enough. His love, grace, mercy, patience, and forgiveness have no end. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful and humbled that you chose to set your love on us. Lord, that you came after us, that you opened our eyes, that you breathed new life into us. That, Lord, for all who know you here, you have created us new. You have given us a new heart and a new will and a new mission. Lord, I pray that you would help us be as committed to our new mission as Paul was. Help us keep our perspective in light of eternity and not be so easily tossed about, so easily knocked off course by the distractions and discomforts of this world. But Lord, help us be steadfast in our love for you steadfast in our commitment to your mission for us. Help us be bold as ambassadors for Christ. Help us imitate Paul as he imitates you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.